0: what's up everybody this is Brandon of the Ross and Brandon show we are back for some episode of a series of episodes and uh, (laughs) we decided to uh, kick this one off talking about something that it really spawned uh, the thought of the conversation for me when we were just talking prior here to the recording like we always do I've just you know kind of casually watched uh, the, the new Conor McGregor documentary on Netflix and having seen some of the the youtube the amazing youtube documentaries on him that covered his entire life the documentary on netflix somewhat covers you know the last three or four years uh, of his of his fighting career kind of through the the turmoil of injury the ordeal with kabib and some of that legal stuff so it's a condensed kind of look at who he is and one of the takeaways that i got and i think anybody that watches it is going to watch it through a different set of eyes. You know, you're going to see it differently than I did. Um, you know, your casual, non-competitive viewer is going to see it very differently than you did or I did. Yeah. But the one thing that I saw in in that was somewhat a, I don't want to say a mirror, but it was a, it was a reminder for me of, of what I felt at times. You know, mm. I don't think I consciously, and I've talked about it on here a little bit, I don't think I consciously took on a heel role in powerlifting, but I did somewhat become that because I was uh a bit confrontational about things that I didn't believe in. I was a bit standoffish, I was, you know, cocky and arrogant, I think, to to a relatively like I knew I was good, but I didn't I wasn't as good as I talked as I was. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. I, I had to believe in myself a little bit more. Um, than I was actually capable of doing, or, or it doesn't make sense to keep going. Like if you don't think that you have a chance to keep getting better and doing more then then what's the point of doing it, at least for a person like yeah. me, but on this, on this thing, you know, of course you see the pre-fight stuff where it's the Conor McGregor show, the, the flashy suits, the most expensive cars, the, the loud brash, you know, weigh-ins mm-hmm. and stuff like that. He has a fight with Khabib. And after the fight, you know, of course he lost in kind of a devastating fashion after all the buildup and all the hoopla before the match. And Dana White walks in and he's like, you know, Connor, I'm so sorry. Khabib jumped the fence. And Connor just looks at him. He's like, none of that fucking matters. I lost, you know, and he just talked about some very technical things that happened in the fight. He talked about like high IQ conversation yeah. about a fight. Like, so this is not. <laughs> the wild man, the loud braggadocious uh, kind of character that he's built right. and I really identified with McGregor early on in his career when he when he got the when he got his first UFC fight he got the big knockout and he, he bought a bow tie for his suit with his last dollar from welfare and you know that was a guy I resonated with. That was a guy I connected to and believed in and like rooted for, and he became someone else. And, you know, you can kind of see it coming and having lived my own experience of that somewhat becoming more the caricature than the person. um, I think it's a very telling point of the mindset of a highly competitive athlete. Um, I don't think that a warrior goes into battle without making peace with the fact that he could die. Knowing that he could never come back. And I just like I don't think a competitor goes into competition without knowing they can lose. But to keep going into competition, having lost or having learned, and then you get to a point where there's money on the line or there's championships on the line, and you almost have to transform yourself into this person that believes you cannot lose. Yeah. You know, and that is a dangerous thing. Um, I think it, it's twofold. I think that. You get a person who believes they cannot lose, so they stop training as hard, they stop paying attention to their nutrition as hard. They stop doing the things that they did that made them great. The other side of that coin is, I think a person, after a long enough timeline, you're like, "I'm just ahead of these guys now. Yeah. They're never going to catch me." And that's another devastating place to be, because those guys, Arnold said it best in pumping iron. you know, and the guy was like, "Well, what do you say about the hungry guy coming up the mountain?" He said, well, when I get hungry, there's food at the top yeah. and I'm here, <laughs> yeah. you know? And it's like, man, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a beautiful place it's to rocky be. Three, it's a true man. statement. That's yeah, what, exactly, that's the whole thing. you know, and that's, so you have this whole psychology of a competitor and then you have a whole psychology of a lifelong competitor and a psychology of a person who has become world level. Like those are different class. Yeah. And then you get to somebody who is the best at what they do. That's a t- totally different class. I think the, again, to get back to the point, I think the most telling thing about it is with a half million or a half billion dollars in the bank, the guy still wants to fight, right? If it was just about making money, the guy has it. If it was just about making money, the things he's already done will make him money for the rest of his life. You know? So why does this guy keep going back into competition? Why does this guy keep, threatening his legacy he hasn't he's won one fight in the last five years you know so like what does he keep doing this thing for and that's where we were talking about the mindset of a competitor long-winded intro to say all that but like it is something that is put a you know it's put me to the highest points in my life of of traveling the world and speaking and getting to compete against amazing lifters of my time and it's also brought me extreme lows. And I think one of the other sides of of the, the documentary that I related very much to was how his training impacts his sense of self. Mm. Like if he's training, if he's getting up on, on the same time and going to train at the same time and eating his meals, he's like, I'm winning every battle. He's like, everything in my world gets better when I win those small battles. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, you know, but then mm-hmm. – you know, you get a week off and it becomes two weeks off and it becomes, ah, you had a little bit too much to drink and you had a little bit too much to eat. It's like that demon is always there of, of like just, man, look at, look at my life. I'm missing my life yeah. for this pursuit. That cheeseburger looks awesome or that beer tastes cold or what, you know, whatever it is that's kind of drawing you in, but that competitors, it's like a competitor's guilt Like he wants to be the best in the world. He wants to live his life. He's earned the fruits of his labors. So why not live your life? But then you wake up two days later and you're depressed because it's like, fuck, I don't want it anymore. Like, I don't want this as bad as I think I do, Mm. as bad as I say I do, you know, because I'm not willing to do the things that I used to do.
1: I always wonder about that with guys that are fighters specifically, just because of the nature of what it is that they do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's, especially in, in competitive athletics, there's always some level of, like my body's on the line like for future uh-huh. years of when this actually is all done, there will be a day it's done, you know, and yeah. how I, how I walk around and how I feel after this, you know, my body's technically online, but, w- but with fighters, I'm, I'm thinking like, dude, your, your life is on the line to a degree when mm-hmm. you step in a ring or step in an octagon like that, you know? So there's even like a, another yeah. level of it's, it's like hyper competitiveness or I mean, I, I think a lot of people would probably categorize it as somewhat like clinically crazy. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. what, like you said, what in what world does Connor need to go in and fight to like even even at this stage, like it's more he could say it's proving something, I guess. But like he doesn't even need to do that. Like right. he had a he had almost a decade where he was like the most dominant fighter on the planet to a degree. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everybody knows. He but, was who awesome. is, but
0: who is Conor McGregor without fight? Right. I mean, and I, th- and I think that's somewhat of the telling question yeah. is, you know, if fighting made him all of that, yeah. if he's not fighting, it it's just like you get rewarded for this echo of who you were forever. And that's something that I've resented very heavily. Uh, myself and struggled to deal with myself, you know, cause like I could still be coaching heavily, involved heavily in powerlifting. And there are days that I do miss aspects of that. Um, but it's also like, that's not who I am. That's not who I am now. And it certainly exposed a lot about who I am or who I was. And I didn't like it. You know, I don't know if a guy like that, I, I think we see when he's not fighting, it's not a good thing. Yeah like he has no control of himself. And I, dude, I relate to that a lot because the discipline of my schedule with powerlifting, my eating, my training, my sleeping, um, that probably kept me out of a lot of my own trouble at times, you know? And I think sometimes when you have a a situation, like I remember I went to do a seminar and you know, it's an embarrassing thing, but it's also like, you're just, when you're the man you think you're the man so i'm at this seminar and um they had a great cookout like really great cookout and a bunch of the guys were sitting around and they're like hey let's just have some drinks so we were just drinking 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 and everybody was you know but it's like looking back on that you know i got hammered i had to do a seminar hungover um you know that kind of thing and it was again like i pulled my shit together but like why am i doing that stuff yeah. you know like why was i allowing myself to do that stuff because i wasn't competing You know, I was just coaching, doing seminars and stuff like that. And I had no accountability to anything that was provable. And I think that's important for a competitor in their mindset is like all this work feel it's like, it's good. Yeah. I look better. I feel better. I'm stronger, whatever. But until you put it to the test in your arena, what's it really matter? You know, just numbers on a chalkboard. Yeah. But until, you know, if I get in that cage and I, you know, beat somebody's ass that's supposed to get mine, shoot. <laughs> like that's that's the juice, man. Like that's what you're talking about. You know? Yeah. Um, and we're
1: seeing it with uh like with Brady too. You know? Yeah. Like the mm-hmm. whether it's the inability or or the lack of desire, I guess, or whatever it is in his head that until recently, and I'm not even still convinced he's actually done.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like to step, well, to why step do you buy away. the Raiders? That's what I mean. Why do you buy the, why it's, do you buy the it, Raiders? Oh, let me just be a little like so coaches. I'm going to take QB. you on yeah.
1: a, on a football conspiracy here for a minute. Okay. All right. This we'll is going to be, if it plays out how I have this idea worked out in my head, it is all time. King of petty Tom Brady, right? <laughs> because he goes and buys minority stake in the Raiders Right. Mm-hmm. Who's the quarterback of the Raiders right now? Who did they just sign to be the quarterback of the Raiders? Uh, no, idea. Jimmy Garoppolo.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who yep. caused the whole mess whole in thing. New England <laughs> when they traded because yes. they
1: were trying to push Tom out to get Jimmy in and Tommy and Tom oh. made the call to say, Nope, Jimmy's leaving, send him away. And so now Tom goes and wins another Super Bowl in New England and then another one in Tampa since then. And then he says he's retired. And then Jimmy goes to the the Raiders and Tom says, you know what? I'm going to buy a piece of the Raiders. So now I can fire Jimmy and come back and take his spot again (laughs) after causing that whole stink. That would be, (laughs) dude. (laughs) And there's, and get this, here's the craziest part about this whole thing. There's actually a clause in Jimmy's contract Mm -hmm. that for this year only, the Raiders can release him or cut him and not have any penalty on the cap. For this year only. Holy shit. There's no, there's, it's the weird, it's a, such a strange little clause. So they could literally cut him with no financial penalty against their cap or anything like that. They will not have to pay him a dime.
0: And now Tom's in there as minority owner. It's <laughs> like, well, so here's the thing. All right, let's, let's play on this for a second in hypotheticals. This is a perfect situation for a one and done, right? Yeah. Because one, it's Vegas party town. Uh, gambling's legal there. Now I think it, automatically shifts the positivity of sports betting to the favor of the Raiders. Like they're going to win some more games. If Tom Brady comes back period, the fan base is rabid, rabid, probably the most rabid, if not one of the top three in the NFL, Jersey sales, ticket sales, Mm -hmm. promotional Tom Brady guest appearances, all this stuff. And
1: arguably one of the best wide receivers he will have ever played with there in Devonte, oh,
0: yeah well and that's that's the thing is the raiders they need a few pieces yeah. you know and they're they're legitimate i mean i don't want to just outright say they're contenders but they're legitimate contenders in their division for sure mm-hmm. um so it's like is a one-year bet worth that on brady how much can he actually bring at 46 <laughs> well, and let's say let's say he goes 11 and 5. Let's say he goes 11 and or what is it? Uh 12 and 5. Let's say he goes 12 yeah. and 5 now. You're going to talk that guy out of not coming back again? Right. You know, that's the yeah. dangerous waters with a, with a Brady. But dude, interesting caveat on the on the contract. Definitely interesting caveat that Brady buys that team. I think that team is just wild enough because it is Vegas and it is the Raiders and in the spirit of Al Davis, <laughs> yeah. like this move makes perfect yeah. sense if you add those scenarios up. But in football sense, Mel Kuyper Jr. sense, um, I see this as a money move if it happens purely because it's not for the good of the Raiders if oh, he yeah. comes back for one year. It's It's good for – publicity it's good for sales it's good for buzz unless you unless they
1: think they're literally only a tom brady away from winning everything you know what i mean like if that's the last if they think everything else is there and all the guys like we get tom for one year there's our that's our window
0: well that is the argument because it's like used to if a guy played and won a super bowl um the team was more or less back together minus one or two guys that left for a bigger contract You know, I'm talking 80s, 90s football. Yeah. Early 90s. Now, dude, when you win a Super Bowl, your individual stock goes through the roof Mm -hmm. and they disband as quickly as they win. That's why right now, I think the successive wins of Super Bowls, especially in a sport like football, basketball is a little different because the rosters are smaller. Um, The player diversity isn't as deep in the NBA. I don't think everybody's fucking great. But on a 22-man on a field, you're going to find more holes than, than basketball. Yeah. So when you win an individual – or when you win a Super Bowl as an individual, your individual stock goes through the roof, and other teams want a piece of that. So to win multiple Super Bowls like Brady did, like the Patriots did, like Belichick did, uh, with an ever-revolving door yeah. of ins and outs, uh, reclamation of – guys that were supposedly washed up that had one skill set that fit that chessboard. Like Tom Brady might be that piece for the Raiders and Belichick might be the person that facilitated the belief that that is a feasible decision. You know, like he took a lot of guys for one year for one reason. So I don't know. I mean, and a
1: few guys that looked like me and made them hall of fame wide receivers when that was never existing ever.
0: Dude, he changed. (laughs) I mean, look how many teams now have that um you know 510 white guy super fast like a lot of teams are using that now so yeah. I, I don't know it's it's an interesting uh and it ties it like, ties
1: into like the hyper competitive nature conversation because it's like that's it's it's if what i the crazy scenario that i laid out if that happens that is literally tom being a psychopath about the game of football and like doing a, a 15 step petty revenge plan just so he can come back on the field again.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like it's well, crazy. But, but again, like you put that same scenario I put on you about McGregor. He's got $500 million, still has to fight. Tom Brady, married to Giselle, got four or five kids, uh, more money than he could ever spend in his lifetime. Super Bowl rings out the yin yang. Like, what is that dude wanting to play football for? other than a psychosis. And I, I mean, literally, again, not trying to compare myself to greatness, but like looking at myself, 11 surgeries deep, I'm pulling deadlift PRs, you know, six weeks after that surgery, I'm pushing a 600 pound raw bench and competition PR, you know, like, did I need 602 versus 587 to cement any kind of place in powerlifting? No, did I want that 600 for myself? Yes. And I've told the story before I call home to tell people about this. And it's like, Oh, here's your son, daddy. I built a leg. Or I said, Hey buddy, uh, daddy bench 600 pounds. And he's like, Oh, I built some Legos. It's like, he didn't give a <laughs> shit, you know, like, and that's, that was one of those like light bulb yeah. moments where it was, this is, this is no longer what I thought it was like. My kid building a Lego set in his mind is bigger than what I just did, and he's right, and I didn't see that until just now. Like that five eighty seven or five ninety two prior was not six hundred pounds, and that six hundred pounds blinded me to so many little things that are way, way, way more important. I would say that's true of Connor, even though in the in that movie it looks like he's an exceptional father always there. Kids are around. Maybe he does it better than I did, but I think that there is something you're missing something along the way. When it, when it continues to the point of excess. And I mean, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking at myself with a fucking black eye and I got cauliflower ear and it's like, I'm 41 doing the same shit talking about it. Like from a perspective that, I mean, I'm not high level, you know what I mean? But I can't, Like, what am I going to do at 50? Like, how hard, how fucking hard am I going to have to kill myself at 50? You know, because like, I've had conversations with myself uh, to like, be cognizant of what I'm doing to myself. But at 41, you know, I got a black eye right now. (laughs) I popped my ear earlier this year. (laughs) I'm always sore. So it's like, is this the best thing for me? Like, is this truly the best thing for me? Or is it still tapping into that thing? (laughs) that I haven't ever figured out how to, to quiet yet. You know, Yeah, I would say I'm, I would say I'm more positive now. Like I'm, it's a more positive impact in my life, but man, like if I don't go or I don't train hard or I don't lift weights, that's, yeah. that's not good. Well, and I don't know how to let that be good.
1: Well, and in, in the, with, with that pre, with the previous two examples of like Connor and Brady, that's how you know, or Jordan, or Jordan. you can put Jordan in like, like that's yeah. how you know, it's about the actual thing that they're doing, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. usually not about the stuff that came along with it, that they're afraid of losing, right? Because like we, we you make the the money example, like Connor and Brady, you could, you Connor will n- never need to make another dime in his life just off of what he's built with the money that he made that will make him money for his family for the next 50 generations. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And with Tom, like he wasn't even the one that made the most money in his own house when him and Giselle were married, you know what I mean? So it's like, and and now they're, they're not together and he's waiting on that. He has a sitting waiting for him, a $400 million contract for broadcasting for 10 years. The, The second he decides to go do it with Fox. Right. And so him not doing that, would lead you to believe it's like he doesn't actually care about this as much as people would want to think it's like oh he just wants to play because he wants another paycheck it's like well he doesn't need it first of all and if he did need it he's turning him down anyways you know like he's turning down more money than he had to begin with so that's how you know it's like there's a level of still probably almost childlike obsession and love with like the craft or the sport or the whatever it is it's like i just i love this thing so much it's not even
0: where I feel a do you responsibility think, do you to think, it. I think it's just, he loves it. You know, do you think that they love the sport or that's like, I mean, and I'm, I'm asking you this cause I hated fucking powerlifting. Like, yeah, I hated it in a sense that I, I, I mean, I was more inclined to like bodybuilding. That was my preference. Like, but I was not going to be a good bodybuilder. You know, I've I realized that early on, like I didn't have the, the gifted insertions and all that stuff to really do that. But I think when I started doing some powerlifting and I started getting good at it, one, the first appeal was that I was good at it. And then the second appeal was, oh, I can make some money and like have a competitive notoriety about it. And that's what made me like continue to do it at a high level. And then it was like, I took on the, the mode of, I don't want to say that like, this is my sport, but it's like, I took on that mindset that, You know, I was good at it and somebody was going to have to beat me to prove that, you know, um, like what I, but everything I've ever done, everything I have ever done, I have wanted to do it at a level of competition. Like when I got my, my street bike, let's take it to the track. Let's get some race leathers. Let's go out here and see what we can turn laps in. Like, I have never just picked something up to want to fucking be okay at. Like, that is the dumbest thing in the world to me is like, I may be average, but I will be my absolute best at it. Like I can handle that. Like I can, like it's like jujitsu. I fucking suck at jujitsu, but I am literally trying to be the best that I can be at it. Like I'm not going in there to just be a casual person, even if my performance is casual, you know? Yeah. Like I don't, I don't know how to do that. Do you have any struggle with that?
1: I would say yes. And it was, man, it's different having, like, cause I guess I was, you know, I was team sports for so long, right? And so there's a different level of it in, an, team, in team a team sports. environment. Yep. <laughs> team team <laughs> sports. And there's a different level of it in that environment, right? Because mm-hmm. there's the there's the account, like that built-in accountability where, and, and I always felt like a level of responsibility for mm-hmm. for other guys, right? Because I was, as it relates to football anyways, I was better at that than I was at track. I mean, I was fast-ish, mm-hmm. but like in track, I've seen some video. In track, <laughs> I've seen some video. <laughs> in, in in track terms, I was aggressively mediocre, as I like to call it. Yeah, yeah. Like I just came back from from D two nationals down in Colorado, Colorado Springs, and just like
0: dudes are just so fast, it's unbelievable. Like those dudes are world. That's one thing that people don't realize about track. Yeah, it's not as dyed <laughs> in the wool in the Power Five. No, not at like, all. Like talk about Jud-, Jud Logan at Ashland. You know, some of the throwers and and athletes that he's turned out, all Americans out of there. It's little Ashland University in Ohio. Rest in peace to to Judd. Phenomenal guy. Yeah, um, and I'll I'll tell you this. Track track is a lot different. Yeah,
1: and I'll tell you this, to, to prove that point better than any example I could give you, Pittsburgh State, small division two school, had a 110 hurdler that I watched in person last weekend become the fourth American ever, third American ever, to run under 13 seconds in the 110 hurdles. It's, it's only been done by two other Americans in history. And a 20 year old from mm-hmm. Pittsburgh state did it last weekend is a sophomore. Yeah. And he ran a 1287 seven, the world record is a twelve eight zero. Like it was just stupid. And like those kind yeah. of things exist. So like back to my
0: point, what did the, what did the, what did the margin of victory look like? He had a two meter lead by insane. the first hurdle. So yeah. he
1: was finishing. Cause you know, you got about eight, you got Like eight, I can't remember the exact distance from the last hurdle to the finish line. Um, yeah. But he was crossing the finish line as the rest of the guys were hitting the last hurdle.
0: Yeah. So, like even yeah, it was like Bolt when he set the world. It looked a lot like that. Nine. It looked a lot like that. Yeah, and it's only like a tenth of a second or or, or some shit like that. You I think know? the it's guy like that pro- I think the
1: guy that got second was like thirteen. 13- 13 to something or thir- like high yeah, 13 to so roughly half, so a, half second. a second. Like it's not that much yeah. when you're looking at just the times, but then when you see that gap, when dudes are running, it's, yep. it's unbelievable. Like it's absolutely it, I've, I'll probably will never see a, a faster person in person in my life than that guy yeah. than, than that 20 year old. So, but to, to bring it back to like how I always like my competitiveness, I thought suited me better for, track than with football because i was always very like internally focused like i did well when i was thinking i was i'm the only one here that i need to 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 do this like i need to get Mm -hmm. myself up and get going because like it's literally just it's not even against me against this dude it's me against the this clock that i can't see you know so like that takes a whole different kind of level of there's no there's nothing in the moment that's happening in a race where you're like, Oh, I'm winning. I'm winning. Cause you don't know until it's over. You know, yeah. like if, if, or if I'm jumping, like if, if, if I'm running a long jump, I'm literally the only one on the runway. I'm the only one that lands in the pit. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I kind of had, that felt pretty good. Like let's turn around and see what it was. So that takes a different level of being able to focus when there's, and, and I assume like powerlifting's a lot of the same. Cause it's like, it's literally just you. Can I pull this bar off the ground? Right. Yeah.
0: That's what, that was my appeal. Exactly. It's like,
1: there's literally nothing else that matters except what I am singularly doing myself right now. And so I, that's what I actually liked about track and, and you know, there's a lot of other reasons why I stopped playing ball, but, um, that's one of the reasons that I, I thought competitively I could, I could hang better in track just because I was able to get myself to that place a mm-hmm. little bit easier than I could. And, and like, from a skill standpoint, I wasn't as high skill comparatively as I was on a football field. Like I, I, I could hang and I was, I was doing pretty well in, for that year I played in college, but it was just like, I, I just needed something a little bit like grimier or something. I don't know, like mm-hmm. something I could connect to and like really make the internal focus about here, here's my job. And I need to like, I either do it or I don't. Right. You know, and it was, I like, I like that black and white kind of nature to it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's, uh, it kind of brought me to a question that I had in regards to some of the athletic mindset or the competitor's mindset. So I will start by saying, I don't think I was a very good teammate. Like um, if you wanted to win, I was a great teammate. If you wanted somebody to push you to, the brink of your sanity. I think I was a good teammate and I'm talking about through my entire dude. And I think I told you this before second or third grade um, we had, uh, it was a co-ed league every third time down the court or something. There always had to be a a girl on the floor every third time down the girl had to shoot kind of thing. And it comes down of like, of course, um, final shot of the game. We're down one and it's, the time for the girl to shoot. And I ended up passing the ball to this girl. Fucking just throw, like, throws it a mile over the backboard. <laughs> we lose the game. I'm like, seven, eight year old Brandon runs down there, spikes the ball off this girl, is like, You're a fucking idiot. You're a piece. Like, I'm seven or eight years oh old. Goodness. And they're like retaining me from <laughs> just screaming at this girl. And she, she actually went on, um, she actually it was Lisa Leslie pretty good <laughs> Rebecca Lobo. I don't know if you ever heard of her, but uh,
1: that's her origin story.
0: Did you ever see, the, by did you ever see the Norm McDonald WNBA <laughs> yes. Saturday night live skit? dude. So good. But anyhow, um, that was, that was me as a teammate, like in one story, if you look at me throughout, but I also had coaches that were that way. Like I've talked about Bunky. He was the one that ran with me. Um, he was the one that put his shoes on and ran eight miles with me on the phone just to like get me through the shit. But that's the way he was like every single day was like, if you don't want to be here, leave. Like, I don't care. Get the hell out of here. Like if you're not adding something, you're taking away. And that mindset for me was there, I think naturally, but it just got kind of enhanced by the the guys that I competed with, you know? And then, went to a powerlifting gym that was extremely competitive, uh, really, really hungry group of guys go to West side. It's dog eat dog. It's you do or get out. And because of that, I just became this, like, if I can push you to the point that you absolutely become the best in the world or break, then we'll know the truth. And like, yeah. look at me, I'm I'm perfect example of that. I pushed myself till I broke. And, like, I didn't physically break a lot of teammates. I don't think I mentally crushed a lot of teammates. But I think I made my teammates miserable many times, no matter the sport, whether it was soccer, basketball, baseball, whatever. I mean, I wanted to win more than I cared about anybody's feelings, including my own. I don't give a fuck about feelings. I want to win. And I think that has made my life difficult in society. <laughs> well, it's just – I mean, that was the entire theme of The Last Dance.
1: Yeah. The whole the – whole- documentary on the bulls that final year like Mm -hmm. that was what everybody and it was it's so funny because with michael he really like long-term legacy really benefited from him not being a part of a lot of the social media age you know what i mean oh yeah like there's this you know there's this mythology about him that exists because there's so much we didn't know about him Mm -hmm. and and that served him very well because Mm -hmm. i mean i even think about it with conversations like with my with my parents and my mom would always say oh he's you know he's still and he is he's the the greatest ever right but Mm -hmm. she has like this like romantic idea of him and i'm like you know he was like, like probably the worst teammate and he like punched dudes at practice and he was the biggest trash talker and he was gambling on everything. It was probably why he had to take that retirement in 94, 95 it was because he was punished. probably why his
0: dad got killed,
1: probably because of that. Like his, and he was, yeah. a, he was a mess. Like everything about him was a mess except for what he did on the basketball court. Like,
0: and so the, the problem yeah. there too, though, is who told Michael Jordan? No. Yeah. And you know, ninety ninety four. 94, who tells Michael jo- Jordan? No, for anything. Yeah. You know, hey, I want 10 women in my room. Hey, I want a pound of Coke. Hey, I need the $250,000 credit line. Hey, what, whatever yeah. it is. Like, who tells Michael Jordan no in Seriously. 1996? Seriously. Yeah. 1996. You know, so when you have a guy who dominates his field, is crushing every single product that he puts his name on, um, is sought after to the point that he turns down hundreds of millions of dollars in endorsements because the longevity of his current endorsements is worth more. It's like you have a guy that has more power against no than any human alive. Connor McGregor has more power against no than most humans alive. Um, and that's a dangerous place because when everybody says yes, you start assuming that everybody's saying yes. you know, and that that leads into the conversation of, okay, Kobe Bryant, Mike Tyson, you know, and both of those guys, the argument was, I can have sex with any woman I want. Why would I rape a woman? But the first statement's very telling. I can have sex with any woman that I want. And, you know, where does that line get get ugly? Where does that line get mean? Where does that line most effective? uh, You know, the confidence aspect of being athletic and competitive and all that. I mean, it can't all be bad. But like most things at the extremes, I think it's terrible. Yeah. Well, that's the show, folks. <laughs> was, my mic was muted because I was blowing my nose and I couldn't get it turned off fast enough. It was like an
1: awkward four second pause where I'm trying to unmute my mic.
0: That's it. All right, <laughs> solved it all. Oh, that was hilarious. That nah, was good. I was on one of my rants. <laughs> I, like,
1: I had to let you stick the dismount. Yeah. <laughs> the with the. The Kobe thing is super interesting too, because I when you said Kobe and Mike Tyson, I always th- I, I immediately thought like that's both of them also grew up essentially, and I guess I maybe Mike's not as much as Kobe, but like sort of chasing this ghost of who is considered the greatest. Yeah, you know, like trying to be like Kobe was trying to be Michael, and by even he even talked about exactly. it, even like the phonetics in his speech. Yes. And- And how he, how he spoke, how he played. I mean, like there's a crazy, I think somebody the the patience and some people have to search through videos on the internet is, I know what you're going to say. There's a video of like Michael doing a move and Kobe doing a move in the, like in a game. And it's the exact same, like the way that he steps, the way that he turns, the way that he shoots, the way that he crosses over. And there's like a compilation. It's like eight to 10 minute video of dozens of instances in games where Michael does something. And, you know, Kobe watched that a billion times. And he's like, I need to do this exactly how Michael did it. Cause I mean, Kobe was the same size as Mike. He had the same build as Mike. So he's like, this is, I can be version 2.0, you know? And Mm. and if you ask like anybody who's probably the closest to Michael, maybe not in greatness, but maybe in, in like style and attitude and just total at package, like Kobe is Michael, the next generation essentially, Right. Mm. And so I'm thinking like, as you're talking about all these, this, the struggles that caused by the extremes, I'm wondering like how much of that is caused because they're just trying to chase and be like, I think Kobe eventually got to the point where he's like, okay, I'm not Mike, I'm Kobe. And that's when he started like really, that was when press conference Kobe became awesome. You know, like he hit that state. I was like, oh, I think it was after that first championship he won without Shaq. And like, oh, seven or eight or whatever it was. Yeah. And after that, he was just like, it doesn't nothing matters what I say anymore. I'm just going to let you guys hear it exactly how it's coming into my head. And no filter, nothing. And I wonder, like, he had to have gotten to that point because he spent so much time, like, trying to chase greatness. But chase like the ghost of Michael, essentially. And that's the only thing he ever compared himself to instead of everybody else that he was actually playing against, which is like the conversation. Like that's the argument. That's the sports argument as old as time is like, well, what if this guy played in this era? It's like, well, that's impossible to analyze because it'll never happen. It's impossible. So it's, yeah, I always, it the, and then with Tyson, like there probably was some
0: level of sugar Ray Robinson. Yeah.
1: I was going to say with sugar Ray, because Muhammad was such a different
0: style. Like I think those two, but like sugar Ray was the guy that he loved. Yeah. And then Ali was the guy like he admired. Right. You know?
1: Right. And then, try, but like with Sugar Ray, as far as trying to emulate, like this yeah, is, yeah. this is more, I can see this being my style. I'm going to really just go all in and like, I'm going to try and be this version of this.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you a question. Cause you brought up something I'd never thought of. Um, so you talked about the ghost aspect, right? I think just talking to men in general, that that is an equivalent factor for every man, because the ghost is their father, the ghost is their grandfather, the ghost is someone that they look up to, you know, outside of that family perspective. I think all men have a ghost that we're chasing. Um, I think all men have some sense of a person that they will never attain that they're trying to be, and I think a lot of lucky men have a Kobe moment where they they realize, okay, I've done enough. I'm not, I'm not going to be that guy, but I can be a lot more of me or a better version of me than I thought, you know, or, or something like that. But do you agree with that? Do you think most men are chasing a ghost? Like, I don't know the exact definition of that, but I think there's something to that. Like there's a, there's an archetype of a man that we're all chasing.
1: I think so too. And it's interesting because we were just having this conversation um, with, a couple of the guys that are in this this coaching group that I'm doing, we mm. were just talking about goal setting stuff. And one of the things that we talk about when it comes to goal setting is, you know, if you're painting this picture in a year, three years, five years, 10 years or whatever, of all these things that you want to have accomplished, you're not going to do that doing the things that you're currently doing, right? Otherwise, you would have already achieved those things. If, if, if right. what you're doing now is good enough to accomplish those things, then you would have already done it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So when you look at this future, it's kind of like the, honestly, it's kind of like that, you know, it's kind of cheesy, but it's kind of good. Matthew McConaughey Oscar speech where he's talking about like his, his version, like his hero is himself five years from now. Yeah. yeah That's, yeah. you know, that speech I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So when we were talking about it, like with the relation to goals, it's like, okay, well, if my goal is to have, you know, you know, this place in my business be this place in my fitness or whatever in, in a year. Like imagine somebody who has that stuff right now and maybe it's just you in a year. Like, what does that look like? What kind of things does that person do? Like, what is mm-hmm. their habit? Like what, what are their habits look like? Or how, how are they taking care of themselves? Like you kind of have to create this future off image and maybe it is an actual person like mm-hmm. that you can look at and, and emulate to a degree. Or maybe it is like the McConaughey, like maybe it's just myself in a couple of years, but I'm i I've achieved these things. And if I've done that, what, what is, what does my day look like? Cause it doesn't look like what I have now. So, but, but by doing that kind of exercise, even mentally, you have like, you have an idea of, okay, well, if I need to be, if I'm going to be a high level, whatever competitor, maybe I'm going to be like, a maybe my goal is to have a purple belt and win like a couple tournaments in three years or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. Like, okay, well, uh, a, a successful competition, purple belt, like how often do they train?
0: Right. I would say most days, right? Yeah. Like,
1: that, but that's like the question yeah. you have to ask yourself, like how often do they train? Mm. Like what, what's st- like, are they, what waiters, what do they out relative to where I am? Like, where do I need to be? So you, you have, you have to ask these questions and then you're like, okay, well, am I doing any of that right now? No. So mm. what do I need to start doing? Like, and then you start kind of like building out in the now, these habits that you, that, you know, or you think that person in the future is already doing. Right. Right? So it kind of like builds out this habit system or like this way to approach things where you give yourself that, you know, if it it, goes I like that term, but it's, you know, and if it's somebody else, like it's, that's a really easy way to do it too. Cause if you're like looking at Mm -hmm. like the Kobe and Michael example, Kobe could look at everything Michael was doing as it was happening. Mm -hmm. And then he played against him for a couple of years, you know? So it's like, well, what does Michael do? Well, he wakes up at four o'clock and goes to the gym and shoots for four hours before everybody's even awake. All right. Well, I can do that. So I'm going to do that every day. And it's like, so you just start like adopting these habits or these things, and then over time, it just becomes like, okay, I'm I'm kind of doing this on my own now. I'm my own version of this. I've tweaked it. I've done my thing. It's kind of like the Bruce Lee approach. It's like I've I've taken what's useful. I've discarded what's not, and I've kind of made my own little flair to it. It's like now I'm just myself doing this. I've I'm, I'm maybe I've caught what I was chasing before, and I don't know if everybody yeah. actually like you said. The, Couple guys get lucky and reach that point. I don't know if everybody will reach that point to the degree that maybe those guys did, but I think there's is some level still of okay, I'm good with this. But like what that does now is it just I think probably moves moves the goalposts a bit because that
0: just kind of keeps you chasing. You know. Do you think? Uh, did you ever see Rodman's Hall of Fame speech? I
1: don't know if I did.
0: It's a good one. Uh, surprise, not surprising, because I was a big Rodman fan, and I, you know, I probably spent more time observing him as a player style in the NBA. And I also was big into collecting basketball cards at the time. Did I tell you I had like ninety four hundred Rodman cards? No way. <laughs> yeah. So, long story short, I was into my friend. Actually, a group of my friends. We got into basketball cards and stuff in like middle school, and kind of bled into like freshman year, sophomore year of high school. And over time, we had a, another mutual friend whose father owned a card shop. So we have like a 16-year-old friend. We're like 13, 14-year-olds. And his kid's running the card shop. And he's like, hey, if you'll do a whole can of dip, I'll give you 10 packs of cards. If you'll <laughs> let me punch you in the fucking face as hard as I can, I'll give you a Bo Jackson rookie card. Like there was all these stupid bets, you know? Deal! Well, so, yeah, so... I actually started collecting, uh, Kevin Garnett cards and I got like a thousand Kevin Garnett cards and he had a huge blow up, huge blow up. And, uh, I was really, like I said, I was into Rodman and his cards were not very valuable at the time. They were 40 cents, 60 cents a piece in value. And, but Kevin had that blow up year, So I had a thousand of those and they were like two, $3 a piece. Um, so I was like, well, shit. There's Rodman cards over here is the guy I like. How many can I get of those? Well, Jeremy was our friend and he kind of peru- like This is early, early blue screen DOS style internet sourcing like a thousand packs of Rodman cards from these card shops. So I ended up doing pretty good. Like I ended up getting like five or 6,000 cards uh, of Rodman and they dude flawless. I had like pages cause they were all nines. Like yeah. he had nine cards on a page. Yeah. I would have like 10 pages based on condition of one card, like stuff like that. It was crazy. Like it was insane. But um, anyway, I don't know why I told you that, but his hall of fame speech, he's sitting there and he's like very emotional. And he said, I did some amazing things. He said, I couldn't, I couldn't have done it without her. And he points at the, the mother of his children. He was like, she was mother and a father. She, she allowed me to be, All that I am, and he said, and and it's not very much. He's like, I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. He's like, but I can play basketball. And he was like, when everything else was falling apart, I was good at basketball. And I think, man, I admired that a lot. Not again, not surprising from a guy like Rodman, just based on you know how he's been in the past. But like, I think there's a lot of guys that feel that that don't ever say it. I think that's a very real scenario businessmen I know I mean I know guys that are crushing it in business never see their kids never see their spouse never never invest in those things and when they do it's like they're kind of an outsider you know yeah I think it's a real I think it's a real conflict for a lot of men like wired like we're talking you know they have this competitor warrior hunter-gatherer provider we'll just call it like primitive mindset or whatever. I think it I think it's causing men problems in society for whatever reason. Yeah, I would
1: <clears throat> Yeah, I would agree. He's a really interesting example too because of he he's one of those ones Rodman in particular where yes, he's one he's one of the all-time greats, but he's one of the few that I've heard like would be considered a in terms of black like basketball IQ, he's a genius. Oh yeah,
0: you know there. Well, you know he started playing super late. Yeah,
1: and there, there was. I think it was maybe I just saw it the other day. Um, but there was an interview with Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, and he was talking about him when they were on the in the Olympic team together. Uh, it was, so I think it was '96, and mm-hmm. uh, he was talking about they're they're warming up and they're watching they're they're going through layup lines. They're shooting around. They're just at the normal shooting around spot. And Rodman is literally just standing under the basket, looking up and watching all the balls hit the rim and he's mm-hmm. just watching and he's not doing anything. He's not grabbing any of them. He's not moving to rebound. He's just sitting there watching. And Isaiah starts giving him a hard time. He's like, dude, what are you doing? You're right in the way. Like, are, are you going to shoot around or what are you doing? He's like, I'm just watching, just keep shooting. And everybody keeps shooting. A few minutes more go by. And he's like, I go back up to him and I'm like, Dennis, what are you doing? He's like, I'm counting the spins. And yeah. he would watch and he could literally, he would count the number of rotations on a shot like, you know, Isaiah's would rotate two and a half times before it would hit the thing. And see, he would say like, he knew every single person on the floor's rotations on a ball, how high it arced on their shot, like how long it was going to be in the air. And by that, he would know if it hits right here, it's going to go mm-hmm. this way. And yep. if and if he shoots it and hits that same spot, it's going to go this way, you know? And yep. so like the the level of like mental ability in like that he had was just unbelievable. And well, I I know that story,
0: man, because my coach, my freshman coach, Mike Key actually told me about it. He's like, learn your shooters. And I can tell you to this day, Clay Derson, when he shot his rebounds came short side. He had, he was either a swish or a miss. He was never long. So come to that short side. Um, You look over at like Troy Clark, he was left-handed, had an odd spin. He was a long shooter. So you'd always go to the far side. There, there was so much that I took away from that. And I carried that for three years um, doing that with all my shooters. Like when I went to Southern, Travis brought us, he was a high arching shot. He was going to have high arching rebounds. Jay Simmons was a little bit more of a flat shot. He was going to have hard line rebounds. I mean, I can tell you what these guys shot because that was such an influential benefit to my game as a rebounder. I was defensive. I was rebounder. I took charges. I, you know, set hard screens and that's why I modeled, you know, I, I grew to, appreciate Rodman because my game just fit my teams that way you know like I was always a hard-working kid loved like effort at all costs slap the floor get down I'm gonna make your day miserable <laughs> kind of thing and uh that's just not a common thing on a floor so it's like I didn't care about points yeah. I wanted to you know I wanted rebounds I wanted steals I wanted assists yeah. like that stuff so it was a puzzle piece that I could emulate you know mm-hmm. but I don't know man it was uh he was an interesting dude. He's he's had a pretty wild life for, I mean, all the shit he's done from banging Madonna and Carmen Electra to having dinner with whatever his name is, North Kim Korea. Jong-un. Being the U.S. Yeah. ambassador to North Korea. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nobody else can get it done. Let's send Rodman. It's super wild, dude. Did you see the pictures of it? It was like, mm. you know, Rodman's 6'7", six, 6'8", six, and it's like everyone there is four and a half feet tall. <laughs> yeah. like every picture... Of rod and, and he's like eight feet, like <laughs> eight feet over top of him. Did you hear about Kim Jong Un's uh, golf tournament? No. Or his, his, he shot like a, for 18 holes, he shot like 23. <laughs> that's the national, that's the North Korean news report. He shot, he had like 16 hole in one <laughs> or some shit like that. It was, it was insane. Our, our great imperial leader oh sets a course record with 22 on 18 holes, 16 hole-in-ones. Oh, that's Two birdies. so good. Oh, my goodness. What a... Par, par is 72. 50 under par. 50 under. Better Better than a six-man scramble. <laughs> Nothing better than that. Oh, my gosh, dude. That was hilarious. I've never heard that. You got to check it out. It's a, it's a real thing. You can do some Googles on it. It's like Imperial, our, our wonderful, masterful Imperial (laughs) leader. It's, it's whatever the translation is. It's bullshit, but it's like sets course record (laughs) and he's done it a few times. Every course he goes to, sets a
1: course record. record. Unbeatable. will never
0: be broken. Untouchable. Oh, It's hilarious, dude. Do you think there's any, uh, do you think there's any threat from North Korea at all? Or do you think they're just like really good at talking shit? I don't know, man. I don't think they're even good at talking. I don't shit. even. Yeah, I was gonna say. I don't even <laughs> think they're that good at that. I love how they were like, "We're about to launch a spy, a spy drone that will, uh, a spy satellite that will observe the United States." I was like, like "They may need to learn what uh, spying <laughs> means." I don't know. kind of just
1: defeated the purpose of the
0: entire well, then it project. Blew up. It blew up like 300 feet off the ground. I always imagine
1: every time that's <laughs> happened to them, I always imagine it like the cartoon where it makes like See, the fart know, sound when it like takes <laughs> off and just go.
0: I always think of it as like in uh, Team America. Like I think of the, like the dictators in those roles. <laughs> just seeing them there. Like <laughs> oh my goodness, dude. In some of the, uh, some of the, um, uh, not impersonations, but some of the voices that they yes. use in that stuff. Oh so my God. Good. Oh my goodness, man. <laughs> but in, on a serious note, um, speaking of uh, international threats, and like I know a damn thing about any of it, <laughs> what did you what did you make of the deal with the the Chinese battleship coming within 150 yards of ours? Like, mm. there's a part of me that's real pissed that we just didn't go like downtown Chinatown, baby. Mm-hmm. Let's go! Like, you want to come over here and fuck around? Let's find out. You know, like, am I wrong in thinking that? Like, You're definitely not wrong in
1: thinking that that's what the reaction should have been.
0: Right, that's what I mean. Like, did we but lose our balls somewhere? I think that or was like, kind of the point of the whole thing. Was to like, well, they showed that's it. That's what I they mean. They showed it. It's like,
1: yeah, watch. We'll be right here. You're not going to do a thing. You know what I mean? Like, that was the whole that that was the whole point of the whole thing. So they did the same the thing with the with that. the alien balloons back in February. The Chinese alien yeah. balloons. You know what I mean? Yeah. And how that fast, how fast that all disappeared. Nobody even remembers that.
0: Well, the real, the real subversive technique they've got is they're buying more land than anyone else in the United States Which is just so, and it's insane to me that, that like allowed. we can't buy land in China. Yeah. We can't buy land in a lot of countries and we just open door policy to anybody that wants some here. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell is going on? But
1: dude, do you, you remember know,
0: me- that? Like four that week
1: of the balloon thing that was, mm. that was the week of, that was when we were at winter Strong. Because yeah. that night when we're all sitting there at dinner is when everybody's getting like, oh, my God, there was another one. There was another one. And like, yeah. we're <laughs> sitting and like flights are being canceled in Montana. And everybody's like, this is it. This is it. This happened. Yeah. And then like a week later, nothing. Hasn't been word
0: since. Well, what do you what do you make of it? Like, why why didn't we do that? Do you think that's what I was going to say on the back end of this. Do you think they're holding something? I mean, outside of our balls, because they have us on production we're so dependent on them for so many things. I think they're toying with the the pharmaceutical stuff, you know, like they're saying the cancer drugs and whatnot. You see where those come from China. Like that's the problem. When you trust your, when you trust your allies that also wear the hat of your enemy, like dude, they knew that they could manipulate us through product, through merchandising, you know, it's, I don't know. But the, the fact that we did not act in that situation, like did they need to be pointing face on? Did they need to like swipe the boat? Did they need wake from their ship to cause us to like? How aggressive does this threat have to be before we send a fucking message? Like,
1: yeah, and even then, I, even I don't, then, when, I don't the, want, when the threat is that aggressive, how many different stupid rules of engagement are have to pass the test before anything happens? Anyways, you know, what well, I mean? man, I'll tell
0: you, like, I'm not saying this just haphazardly. I know guys that were in the Middle East that had target, like acquired sighting through their scope on their rifle of selected targets on that top 10 list, right? Permission to fire or permission to engage. Denied. Okay, we've already put a lot of effort into this. He's right here. Okay, we need a live capture. Okay, can we get the process on this? It's going to take some time. Well, they leave. They observe as far as they can. And then the guy's gone. Like, do you want to fucking kill these, these bad guys? Or do you just want to sit here and have this deal of, um, uh, you know, just an ongoing perpetuated war forever. Cause one of those is what we're doing, you know, uh, interesting. Which would lead you to believe in. that that's what they want to happen. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's exactly what they want to happen. I mean, but here's a conspiracy for you. Um, you ought to Google around on it. And I, you know, again this is just me sharing information not a not a belief or opinion but i can spin my the the information to a conspiracy all right so apparently in maybe it was like june july of 2002 there was an egyptian report in an egyptian newspaper that uh osama bin laden had been buried in egypt and that there had been uh a like a, a gathering okay why would you need to keep Osama bin Laden alive if he was actually dead, like in through the media, mm. because he would be public enemy. Number mm-hmm. one, he's the face that we were sold and told was the man. And if he dies, I think along the way you, you start to assume we've won the war. The yep. This is over. We killed up. the guy. Doesn't come until years and years and years later. Right. Yeah. Did you, did you see all the facial changes and things like that? the, the alternate Bin Laden's and stuff. Yep. It's just an interesting thing to look down the rabbit hole of. Like I said, I don't, I don't know what I believe about any of it. Um, I do think it's a bit strange that they, uh, you know, they hang Saddam Hussein on CNN live. They show muqtada al-Sadr. They show Hussein's sons, Kude and Use. They show, uh, Zawahiri. They show him yet. We kill Bin Laden. And we give him a ceremonial burial at sea sans photograph.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm just asking questions. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm just saying like, these are the things that happened and all of that is checkable. And the number one guy, the guy that's been on every single news outlet, newspaper on and on and on. Like he is a cultural figure in our history and you don't, show us proof of that like they showed muqtada al-sadar's head fucking blown in half with his eyeballs sticking out like mm-hmm. you hang saddam hussein on video
1: On yeah. we don't television. get a
0: picture yeah it was i remember that yeah. like i will never forget i was watching it at work i was like let's go yep. <laughs> let's see this happen you know but uh it's just it's just curious to me probably the most wanted fugitive in in american history Outside of possibly John Wilkes' booth. Um or the second
1: gunman on the grassy knoll.
0: Well, that is <sighs> he's long <sighs> sought after. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so many, dude. The uh, when I- that would be a cool thing to look into is like who are the famous ones that got away? Mm. K- kind of the thing. That you would know? be that'd be a that'd be a whole that'd be a history channel show. Yeah,
1: the ones that got away. Yep. That was like, well, wasn't the That was the whole premise, I guess, of
0: Tim Kennedy's show.
1: Yeah. You know, like
0: chasing all the Nazis through Argentina and whatnot. Did you see the documentary about the guy that bought the that tried to sell the Russian submarines and helicopters? No. <laughs> what? Oh my god, dude. Hit me. This is like this is like hold on. I gotta go to the phone and look this up. Documentary. Russian submarine sales. <laughs> Google knows what you mean. It does. It, it'll just <laughs> fill in the blank. Operation Odessa. Okay. This thing. That's the name of the documentary. At, let me just show you the cover. I'm this in. is the cover. Looks like Kenny Powers <laughs> draped in a flag. Dude, this is like Vice City. Yes. Meets Kenny powers (laughs) meets a sickle and hammer in the red, white and blue. This is like Rocky four. Yes. Kenny powers. I mean, but it's a great, it is the craziest shit you have ever heard in your life. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the wildest documentaries ever. Where is it? It just, I
1: probably just have to rent it somewhere.
0: No, no, I think it's on uh, it might be on prime, but I think it was on Netflix for a minute. Um, but it's crazy. So this guy comes to Miami, gets into the drug culture, gets into the club culture, uh, ends up meeting some people, starts connecting dots, starts wanting to sell Russian tanks and shit to people so they can move cocaine around the world. W- Speaking of guys that got away, one of the guys stabs one of them in the back, turn coats and st- takes like $40 million and goes on the run against this criminal group. Oh my gosh. And like he was, did you ever see um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Yes. S- okay. It's the same deal. This dude is the fox. Okay. He's the one that plays yep. them against each other and then steals all the money yep. himself. And he comes on the documentary talking to him. Never hasn't been seen in like years and is sitting there talking to them. And there's a Russian gangster. Do they that's know talking it's him? About, it's a hundred percent him. Like it's his face. Okay. It's his voice. Okay. It's clear. Like he's sitting there just on a private jet. Just like, I don't know where the money is. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's I've definitely just not been right here. <laughs> for, yeah. I, it's not my private jet. It's my friend's private jet. You know, But it's, Dude, it is like an acid trip meets cocaine meets like a strip club. I don't, I don't know what to tell you about it. It's the wildest, twisting, turning. Wow, it, it's just crazy. It is. It's a okay. crazy documentary. You got to watch. I made a note. Yeah, it's a wild one. Like the stories just keep getting weirder and weirder <laughs> inside of it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, noted. Noted. Sweet man, we want to wrap it up. I think that's it, man. I think, uh, you know, I don't know if we solved anything, but I feel better.
1: I think like, that's probably how we end most shows, honestly.
0: Well, you know, it's weird. Cause like, this is stuff that I think about a lot for myself. Yeah. Like I, I really do try to keep my my brain like in those bowling bumpers. Yeah. Cause like, you know, we're talking about jujitsu and that competitive aspect. Like I think i found a healthy balance with it. Yeah. I got black, I got a black eye cause I got elbowed. I got a, cauliflower ear. Cause I was trying to escape a headlock, you know, like those kind of things are going to happen in pursuit, but you know, I do, I do have to keep that balance because if it was just me left to my own devices and I was a single person on an Island, I would train all the time because that's the only thing that I know consistently I can control, get result from and feel better from right. Like at all times, those things are, are happening. But finding that, that rhythm with life where I can go to a a class in the morning, have a good rest of the day or go to a a class in the evening and have a good day leading up to that, that sounds silly. But for somebody who like really struggled with that in points of their life, I think I'm doing okay, but I have to keep those, those reminders up in my head all the time or I can kind of veer outside the lane a little bit. So it's, it's always a work in progress. Like it's, dude, this this book is not going to be done until I'm six feet under, you know, like I I don't think I'll ever have anything figured out. The more I learn about myself, the more questions it opens up. But it it gives me, it gives me frame of reference to build from if I'm asking the questions. Yeah, man. And as far as
1: uh, we're now got everything moved over to the new feeds and the the page and everything Um, there will be, we were just talking about before we're going to have, there'll be a YouTube page up as well um and then i think i texted you the other day but i started a twitter for Peace love and meat also just because that's okay. where i've been hanging out a lot lately and so it's just like yeah why not it's fun so uh yeah. we'll be there as well um and all over the place
0: yeah just giving an option to streamline this that way it's like you don't have to go to ross's page you yep. don't have to go to my pages it's just kind of everything will everything be like will a be focused here. streamlined so that's the and dude i really appreciate you helping with that because i think you know we've talked about the, the open and honest reality of this is, is like, you have a great message. You just need to get it out there and I can help with that. I have things to say, and I just need help with organization and some of the the technical stuff. And that's where you're really good. So I think that's why this is, this is working so well, is it just, we're not really trying to, to gain anything from it. We're trying to give, yeah. you know, really just mm-hmm. give as, as much as we can of, i don't know it's not like i'm not giving anything i'm just having a conversation but it's like it's me yep you know so that's that's what's maybe different because it's it's not for any other reason than just to share yeah so totally anyway all right guys we'll catch you next time appreciate it thanks so much